Welcome to the New Providence Presbyterian Church podcast, where we will share our messages from our weekend worship services. We hope these messages will inspire you and challenge you in your walk with Jesus. Hey, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be together on this Sunday after Easter. Uh, a number of weeks ago, we were sitting around as a, as a staff thinking Jeff was leading us through a conversation, what would be good series right after Easter, and it came to us um, pretty succinctly right out of the gate, and it was to focus over these next weeks a series of messages on family, and specifically kind of the messiness of relationships generally, and specifically in terms of family, and so you're going to want to be here every Sunday. Uh, Jeff asked me to kick off with sort of a general look at, at family from a biblical standpoint, and then it's going to get specific um, in different aspects of relationships, particularly as they come to the fore uh, in terms of family life. So um, be sure and invite people and uh, be here every Sunday through the end of May. Uh, The guy I want to kick off talking about this morning, he was the youngest kid of three, and his life throughout from almost the very beginning was full of pain. His grandparents passed away before he was born. Uh, His dad died when he was only four. His older sister died at age 11, and this young kid was only eight. His mom passed away suddenly when he was 13, and so at age 13, what was a family of five was down to two brothers, he and an older brother. And to say that that relationship between those brothers was estranged would be an under an understatement. They were always at each other in every way, and they were far from close. And so eventually, the young man had had enough in relationship with his brother, bouncing around from one kind of foster family to another, one family taking him into another, and when he was old enough, he struck out on his own. And what ensued were months and even years of bouncing around from one job to the next, getting in trouble from one thing to the next, having run-ins with the law, one after another. And so after a series of run-ins, and and most of those became widely known in the small community in which he lived, Um, with no family to rein him in, he tragically died at age 26. And it's unclear exactly how he died, but it, it was apparently in the midst of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing that he had no business doing. And so at his funeral, after a life of kind of obscurity and just bouncing from one thing to the next, only a couple of friends and his brother showed up. And really at that point, his brother was so estranged from him that he kind of showed up to make sure that the uh, grave marker was in place. And he had taken the time to really think through what he would put on this brother that he had come to really hate to put on his gravestone, for people to read, to know what this brother thought his brother was really all about for years, decades, maybe even centuries to come. And he decided to put a poem on that gravestone, a poem uh, that would kind of capture how he viewed his brother, that in fact his brother was a terrible person and that he died young and he got what he deserved. The poem on his gravestone went like this. 
This is a picture of it, actually, and let me read it to you if you can't read it. Come think on this dejected youth whose dissipated days he did not obey the voice of truth nor listen to its ways. Death did this early flower blast, his sentence passed full soon, his morning fare was soon overcast, his sun went down at noon. Man, I don't want that poem on my tombstone. You know what I'm saying? And the young man's name was Levi Mulford. And his tombstone is just outside my office window on the side of the sanctuary. Levi, Levi and I have shared a little piece of geography here for about 30 years. And I remember the first time I read this tombstone. I have shown it to so many people. Maybe I've shown it to you. And I used to always think to myself, before I looked a little deeper into his life, where was his mother? Like, you would think at least his mom would go, don't put that on his tombstone. You know what I'm saying? But it turned out he had no one to defend him in that moment. But his brother and his brother was happy to put this on here. Now, some of the story I embellished a little bit and just kind of was conjecture from things that I read on the other tombstones. The fact that he was alone, that his family died, his family is right strung out. His is the, the last one on a row of gravestones. His is on the Springfield Avenue side, and going all the way back through his grandparents is the Mulford family. But suffice it to say that his family life was not a good one. It just wasn't at, at all. Growing up with no mom, no bad dad, the heartbreak of losing a sister at a young age. I mean, you can just imagine bouncing around on your side, uh, on your own, with no one to kind of rein you in. The story of Levi Mulford and his family is a messy one. The story of every family is complicated and messy. And it would seem to me um, that that is a common denominator of us all all the way back to the first family. And it's always struck me, and, and maybe you've heard me say this before, as a stroke of brilliance of the Lord, as you could just picture him thinking, all right, what's the common thread I'm gonna run through my story of trying to stay in relationship with my created favorite apple of my eye, humanity? I know, I'll run a totally real dysfunctional family through the core thread of the story of redemption and brokenness and redemption again. And that's what he does. If you're into things of like doing family research and stuff, Google sometime like Joseph of the Old Testament and his family tree, his genogram, looking back descriptively through his background, Joseph of the Old Testament. It is an absolute train wreck. And it would seem to me, at least as I've thought about it, that that is like a comfort, you know? That God didn't hold up this pristine, perfect family, and you attain that, that's the goal. No. He held up like this gritty, earthy, real struggling family, struggling along, and the question is, where was he in the midst of all that? Well, Adam and Eve, you know their story. And their kids, Cain and Abel, you've known that story. 
since you were little kids. I thought back when Jeff assigned me this passage, Genesis 4, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Cain and Abel. I'm sure it's been preached, but I I hadn't. And, And yet, it's a very familiar story to us all. That first family, especially Adam and Eve, in the garden, everything was perfect. Everything was innocent. Everything was good. And then along came, you know, disobedience. As God said, do what you want. You have total freedom here. Just don't eat from that one apple. All the other tree, all the other apple trees, go at it. Just not that one, please. And of course they did, and you know the results of that later. And that brokenness goes right into the next generation, Cain and Abel. They're two kids. And they took that disobedience and dysfunctionality and knocked it up a notch. You know, where one brother kills another. God, for whatever reason, and scripture is unclear, God preferred Abel's sacrifice to Cain's. And that started to gnaw at Cain. And we can identify with that, feeling left out, feeling second rate, feeling like the other one is above me and favored by the one that I want to be favored by. And in Cain's case, that natural tendency, the intensity of his feelings started to get the better of him. Those intense feelings of hatred towards and jealousy towards his brother. And we who have siblings can understand that, especially thinking back when we were kids. We can understand that. There's something about family dynamics that accentuates the feelings that come to us all. We seem better able sometimes, oftentimes, to tamp down the true feelings with people we're not related to. Like, that could put me in a bad position. I better not say that to my boss. I shouldn't say that to my neighbor because I need to get along with them. But behind closed doors with family, the, the gloves come off. And I think especially as kids, but even for us adults as well, anger, defensiveness, fear and shame. That was the grocery list of, of Cain related to his brother. Anger, defensiveness, fear, shame. And again, for the most part, we keep a lid on that. But, but when it comes to family, it's something altogether different. I have a brother who's two years younger than me. He and I were tight. Played in rock bands, played ice hockey, best men in each other's weddings. We still are super tight. And um, I have this memory of being his older brother, uh, being able to beat him at a lot of games when we were younger, including Monopoly. I could just crush him at Monopoly. It, it was just my thing. And one day, my younger, pretty intense brother had had enough. And he stood up, and he took the cover of my Monopoly game and tore it in half. And I did what any self-respecting older brother would do. I grabbed him and I bit him on the head. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> or, or so he says. I don't really remember it quite <laughs> that way, but I, I might have. And we who have siblings kind of can resonate with Cain with Abel, you know, where maybe we didn't kill our older brother or our younger sister, but we, we kind of wanted to at times, you know? And parents kind of sorting all that out. 
Well, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, and I appreciate Audrey asking you to turn there. We're not going to read through it, but let's skate through it this morning. On the surface, you have two brothers going at it. Things escalate. A murder happens. But as wild and crazy as that story is on the surface, two brothers going against each other, one ending up dead. It would seem to me that the focus of the story is not the brothers. The focus is God's interaction with the brothers, and especially with Cain. God's interaction with Cain, God stepping into this messy, troubled family, as he did with their parents, Adam and Eve. He's doing with them. And in the end, he does what he wants to do. God always does what he wants to do. Um, it's, it's how the name of our town here got its name, Providence. God does what God wants to do. And it doesn't make sense to us humans often, but that doesn't matter because he's God. And thankfully, we're not, you know? And so this is a great example of that, it seems to me. We find that throughout Scripture, God entering into the mess, especially and including and especially maybe family mess. And, and I would suggest that's the takeaway from the message this morning. That when the mess comes, and what's messier than a brother murdering another brother? That's as messy as it gets in families, it would seem to me. God enters in. God doesn't sit back and go, well, then the heck with you. God enters in to the mess. In the midst of the mess, God is. Take that away this morning. In the midst of the mess, look for him. He is there. God can be found in the mess. And sometimes, sometimes he cleans up the mess, which is super awesome when he does that. But sometimes, he just sits with us in the mess. And that can be very annoying, you know? That's not pleasant for us, and it's, it's less pleasant for him. And again, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just clean up the mess? Or maybe put a preventer so the mess doesn't even happen. He could have done that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. God is God. We are not. He does what he wants to do. And we need to trust him at that level. He knows what is best. In the midst of the mess, God is. God can be found in the mess. Sometimes he cleans up the mess. Sometimes he doesn't. But the fact is, he is always with us. And so he's here with us. And if you come this morning um, with some situations in your family, relationships, your personal life that is a mess, um, welcome, you know? And God is there. God cares, just as he did in the midst of the story of Cain and Abel. God is there. And it's, it's, it's such a comfort, again, to find ourselves in the pages of Scripture as he lays it out. Now, for, for Cain... As I kind of wrestled through this passage, and again, keep an eye on chapter 4 of Genesis this morning. It seems to me God's presence in Cain's life involved four things. First, God pursued him. Just like he did Adam and Eve. God chases after them. Even when Adam and Eve hid, even when Cain, I'm sure, was beside himself when he realized what he had, had done, 
when your life, your family, your marriage gets messy, God pursues us even into the mess. Before Cain killed Abel, God pursued him. And he said this, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? It's incredible to me that God noticed that Cain was sad. God noticed that Cain was sad. Like, that is such an indication that God cares about us. God created everything that there is. He has a very busy day today. I mean, in the universe, with all kinds of stuff going on, the sun needs to keep shining exactly perfect. Um, uh, the, the earth needs to stay. God's keeping all this going. On the earth, you got wars. You got this. You got kids dying. You got cancer. You got the whole thing going on. God, in the midst of all that, God looks at you and he goes, why are you sad? Why are you sad? You know, like, I care about you. Let, let's talk about this. Like, that's unbelievable. Is God really like that? I think he is. You search scripture for God being very empathetic, not just off in the distance, and it comes shining through. And then after he kills his brother, God pursued him again, and he says, he says this, it's a whole different tone. What have you done? And he goes, listen, listen. It's very demonstrative. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the, from the ground. God pursues Cain. He pursues us. And that ultimately is what the incarnation, it's what Christmas is all about. God pursuing us. And there's, there's nothing that we can ever say or do that would prevent him from relentlessly chasing after us. God has been, the Holy Spirit has been referred to as the hound of heaven. And nothing will stop him from getting to you. No matter what you do, no matter what you say. God pursues us. Secondly, God pleads with us. God pleaded with Cain. He interacts, he speaks with him. And, and he did it on a number of occasions. He says this before he killed his brother. He said, listen, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted and by me, he's saying to him? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But listen, I'll help you, but you must master this. Like, you must like, the ball's in your court, dude. I've shared with our students so often. Sometimes, when you do something really stupid, you get a second chance. Sometimes, you don't. Levi Mulford apparently did too many stupid things and at 26 died and had a poem stuck on his tombstone that I just read 200 years later. Sometimes you get a second chance. It's like God saying to Cain, dude, sometimes you don't. There is an evil force out there, and it desires to, to kill you and devour you. 
And may that be a warning to me and to you today. And God lays that out to Cain. It's not too late. It's not too late. This is the way God works. He delineates. He points out forks in the road. And that is to our benefit. He says the same things to us today. And the question is, do we have ears to hear? His warning, his pleading, which often comes through a trusted friend, through scripture for sure, and in whatever way God chooses. Third, God pronounced his judgment. God pronounces his judgment against sin. We choose to go against him, his way, his truth, and he pronounces judgment. I got asked to teach uh, a number of years ago an Old Testament course at a college in Newark. And I kind of pushed back a little bit because I taught for them a lot, taught nothing but counseling. And I go, I don't know, like I haven't taught that class, Old Testament, it's college level. And they go, and the person goes, "Um, well, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I go, yeah. And I go, well, we need you to teach it. And I go, okay. And about halfway through that class, it, it hit me and it hit the whole class. Like, we got tight going through that. And I, one t- point I look out at the class and I go, do you get the feeling like this is more than an academic exercise? We're supposed to be diving deep into this, this material, the Old Testament. And they all go, yeah, yeah. We've all felt so convicted. Man, if you haven't gotten into the Old Testament for a while, you come away with realization that God does not appreciate sin. Like it's not okay. Through Christ, we are forgiven. We are set free. But there's judgment. There's consequences. There's results. You know, it's not okay that Thomas Jefferson took the Bible and cut out all the bad stuff and made this happy butterflies and unicorn Bible. You know what I'm saying? Because the Bible's not that way. And it really struck me. It was so convicting. I, I shared that with some people. Like, wow. And I think this is an example that God pronounces his judgment. And this is what he says to Cain. Listen to me. That's a stern thing when your dad used to say that to you. Listen to me. Like, their face, they didn't even have to have the words. You know, like, the teeth are like this. You know what I'm saying? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That's ominous. Now you are under a curse. What does that mean? And driven from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So you know Cain felt rotten to begin with, and this is not helping his feelings. But he just killed his brother. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth for the rest of your life. The consequences of Cain's action. The consequences of, what word sums up the consequences of Cain's action? And it's, it's an ominous word. It's a word that we've struggled with big time over the last two years. And some of us continue to this day. The word is isolation. You will be banished from everything and everyone you hold dear, including me, says God. Isolation. Isolation. 
That's, that's way more than loneliness. Way more. Isolation is a terrible word. Isolation is like being stuck on a deserted island, like Tom Hanks was on Castaway. Isolation is being locked in solitary confinement in prison. Have you ever heard someone try to describe what that's like, a prisoner describing what that's like? Isolation is to be estranged from God, your homeland, others, family, purpose, like Cain was. In his just published book, From Isolation to Community, it's a brand new book. It just came yesterday to my house. It looks like a really great read. From Isolation to Community, I'll put it out on the uh, uh, email that's coming out to, tomorrow related to this message. Mile Warrens describes isolation this way. It is isolation that better describes the complex way in which sin divides human beings from God and from one another. Distancing them from the goodness and benefit of God, who is our source, and from others from whom we receive these good gifts. It is isolation that names the experience of life as being bracketed by an almost inescapable, and I would suggest also indescribable, aloneness. Now, to some degree, we experienced that, and our kids did over these last two years, stuck in the basement, going to church, going to school, going to work, staring at a lit screen. That's no way to live. That's, this is no way to live, you know? And yet, this, this is our reality, and not just from COVID. We do way too much of this, and I'm talking to myself. I crossed Passaic Avenue texting and almost got run over by a car. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mike, don't do that. You know, live life, don't look at screens all the time. And I think that that has driven us into isolation in a way that we may not fully understand. And Cain really bristled at this pronouncement to him. This is what he said My punishment is more than I can bear. He said to God, today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And, that may, and I insert after that, that may not be such a bad thing because this is more than I can bear. Devastating. And again, some of us this morning can identify with that level of aloneness, isolation, and feelings that go with us, with it. Um, the question to us this morning it would seem to me is how are you doing you know as we come out of this pandemic um, as we enter into a beautiful spring on a beautiful spring day uh, after we had such a great celebration last week on Easter morning how, how are you in your relationships how are you in kind of the messiness of life how, how are you doing? And if you're feeling isolated, may you know that you are not alone. God is pursuing you as he pursued Cain, pleading with you to come back to him, to reckon whatever it is that is ripping at you and hurting your relationships. And he doesn't stop there. The story of God's interaction with Cain in the aftermath of the mess that he had created for himself is that God promised to protect him, to protect him. Cain was worried that when people saw him, they would kill him. He go, God goes, no, no, 
I will put a mark on you. And, and we've heard that, like that phrase, the mark of Cain. And it's a protective mark. It's a mark of security, of belonging, that despite the banishment and the results and all that goes with that, you are still mine. The scripture that comes later is true for Cain. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Listen, I know your name. I've called you by name. And you belong to me. So nothing's coming your way that doesn't get past me first. That's God's like promise to us. That's his protective hand over us. And scripture records, and then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And he promises to do the same for us through Christ. No matter what comes your way, no matter what has you in isolation this morning, God says to you, I am pursuing you. I have found you. I am with you. And if you give your life to me, I will mark you as mine. And nothing, nothing can get past me to you. That in fact we are safe in him, in Christ, the resurrected one. That we celebrated last week and that we celebrate this morning as well. The grace and power and mercy and forgiveness of Christ demonstrated on the cross to resurrection. He is alive, is yours today if you've given your life to him. And if you haven't, and only you can determine whether you have or you haven't then may today be a day of salvation or restoration if you've been distant from him. And may we be about that in the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder that you never leave us or forsake us. That even with Cain, when you banished him away, when you put the consequence of his grievous sin on him. You didn't fully leave him, and you never leave us. May you take us by the hand through these next weeks and restore and heal where that needs to happen. May you advance your kingdom in our lives and through our lives. And may you receive glory for it in Christ's name. Amen.